Hi, Teamsters. I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison. And this is a podcast without an audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. I just got giggling. <laughs> I don't know why. I feel like I've used the or not in multiple text messages over the past week. <gasps> just like that. casually dropping it in everywhere. I mean, it's very, I feel like it's it's useful in every conversation. I really need a t-shirt that says or not. If you could work on that for me. I'll talk to actual Angel Ashley. We'll see what, Thank you so what much. we can do for you. I appreciate that. How, how you doing? I'm good. Um, Moby is the cutest thing in the world mm. and has started cuddling me more. Oh. Specifically on my face at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> he He's like, like just comes and plops down mm-hmm. and then pushes me off my pillow. He knows how you feel about the weighted blanket situation. <laughs> He's trying to get in on that. Yeah. Yeah. He um, is not the most intuitive cat I've ever owned. Okay. I mean, he's no Leo. Sure. However, sure. he is becoming excellent at cuddling my face at four o'clock in the I morning. I love that. Yeah. Dolly bites, licks and bites my skin. Oh. So well, that's charming. That's how we bond. <laughs> if, yeah. If she, if she feels me stir, she knows it's almost time to like get her breakfast and. Oh, Okay. See, that's why I started feeding the boys at night, because I got sick of having them wake me up early in the morning. See, I feed her twice a day because I hate myself. Oh, oh. <laughs> it all makes sense now. There's a difference. <laughs> um, so, I watched the first episode of The New L Word. <gasps> <laughs> and Rosie is the best thing about it. I am so excited. And it's on uh, Showtime. Which mm-hmm. channel does that? It's not on Hulu. What streaming service do you use to get it? The Showtime streaming the show, service? Yeah. I don't have that. So so here's what I want to have a movie night? Yes. We, we should. So, okay. Ray, I, Ray and I got caught up. We rewatched the first season of uh-huh. the Generation Q. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm like totally into this. But we, um, we got, so we got caught up. So Ray was like fully, cause he watched, he went back and watched like a couple of the original L word seasons, but never got like, he was never like fully, fully committed. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, Bet and Tina, blah, blah, blah. Jenny okay, Schechter, Shane. Blah, blah, blah. Shane. <laughs> um, so anyway, the new season is disappointing. The writing is not as good. No. And like having watched the... Because <clears throat> season one, I liked. And I liked it too. And it, and it took me a minute to get into it. Because right. the writing style is so different than the original series. But season two, there it's, it's like an Orange is the New Black season two. Where oh. you, there's like such... An, a shift. A shift. Yeah. Yikes. Yep. But Rosie O'Donnell's in it as she, Tina's... New boo. New boo. They're engaged. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And these are all, this is all spoilers, obviously. Um, (laughs) I mean, I feel like people listen to us now for the spoilers. Oh. We talk about so many books and movies and cult stuff. I love that reputation for us. Yes. Come for the the spoilers. spoilers. Stay for. Two for tea. The movie references. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Anyway, it just was not, it was not, I felt disappointed. But Rosie is like chef's kiss. Like, completely carries the scenes. She's fully committed to her character. 
I very, love that. Very good. I, and of course I haven't seen it yet because as we just discussed, I don't have the Showtime mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I've seen clips of it on like TikTok and Facebook ads. Oh. Um, so like I know a little bit about her character and I just kind of want to believe that that's, this is all organic. This is just like who she is. I would love to think that. Yeah. So, so far I feel really good about it. I can't wait to see the whole thing. Yeah. I need to maybe take a break and come back. A little breaksy poo. little breaksy poo? Come back. Let's do it. Oh, no, no, no. I meant to the show. Oh, I thought you wanted to actually take a break. <laughs> no, I just peed. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I now don't know. <laughs> We've uh, forgotten how to record a podcast in the past week. <laughs> What's going on with you? <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> same old, same old. Um, so it's just been a roller coaster mm. of life lately. Um, the best case. thing recently is that I. Um, on my way to and from Nashville for the Chick Shit Pod Prom, mm-hmm. um, which was amazing. So much fun. But on my way to and from, I listened to audiobooks because I did. Because. And um, I'm not going to tell you the first one I listened to. I mean, you, Allison, know the first one I listened mm-hmm. to. But I'm not going to tell everyone else the first one I listened to because I think we might be coming back to it in the mm-hmm. future. Um, so we're going to keep that a surprise. The second one, however, is um, House in the Blue Cerulean Sea. Mm-hmm. And did you read Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children? No. But I know Cerulean Blue from Devil Wears Prada. So <laughs> <laughs> Lots of overlap there. <laughs> um, so this has kind of like a Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children magic feel to it. Like mm. um, there are all these kids with special abilities or who are kind of magical, don't have, like they're not all human. Um, but the there's a essentially a child protective services worker who ends up going out to this group home to check and see how these kids are doing. And it turns into, like, this cute little gay love story. Oh. And um, I'm not going to tell you how it... I We're here for the spoilers, right? Oh, like, yeah. They fall, he falls in love with, like, the headmaster, and it's just so cute. Is this, like, so a loving Annabelle situation? I'm confused. No. So, these are two adults. Okay. Thank uh, you. One's a CPS worker. One is the headmaster of the group home slash boarding school. Gotcha. Um, and they're like collectively taking care of six kids who are magical mm-hmm. creatures or children. Gotcha. Um, but it is just the cutest story. And it was such a good palate cleanser after the first book I listened to, which was very dark and heavy. Yeah. Which I also enjoyed. But just sometimes you need a yeah. light, easy Whopper. read with a gay love story. I love a gay. I love a gay story. Like I don't want to ever go too long without reading a good gay love story. Yeah, again. there's an SNL skit that talks about. It's called Lesbian Period Piece. I've seen it. Is that <laughs> the one that's like based on affinity and like it's just? It's just about a girl. It's just like a parody of of like the period lesbian. <laughs> Dramas. tipping the velvet yeah it has very tipping the velvet they're at the coast and there's and it's just like this voiceover of like you know there's like five lines of dialogue you know <laughs> lots of you know ocean scenes lots of eye contact yeah 
Yeah. We yeah. love a good eye contact. I love a good period piece. Me too. I really do. Every time we see one, Ray's like, hey, hey, babe, there's a period piece for you. <laughs> Doesn't matter what it's about. I'm into it. Uh, speaking of which, I... So for Chick Shit Prom, wore a corset. Mm-hmm. And our dear friend, LJ, was like lacing up the corset. And I was able to quote for the first time ever from Ever After, mm. um, if one cannot breathe, one, one cannot can eat. eat. And I just felt so good being able to pull that out. That's it's not right. very often I get to use a, That's right. a good Ever After quote. That's right. He always waves at the gate. <laughs> um, the one I... The one I probably use the most is from Utopia. The, um, mm-hmm. if you suffer your people people to be ill-educate, mm-hmm. ill-educated and their manners corrupted from infancy, then what can be concluded but that you first create thieves and then punish them, mm-hmm. which I use at least once a week. I love that. Yeah. That would be like the best Scrabble word ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so also, I need to do a correction corner. Our very first, well, I have, let me do two. About a thousand episodes ago, I misgendered Eddie Izzard. Oh, shit. Yeah, and I didn't realize it, and somebody brought it to my attention. So I don't even remember talking about Eddie Izzard, but I think that's just where we are in it our was podcasting years journey. Ago. Yeah. Um, but then also, I tried to kill off Ringo Starr before he's actually dead last episode. So he is still with us. Okay. Let me just Google that. Let me just make sure. So yeah, he, Ringo is still alive, and I feel bad because he's always the forgotten one. He's like, you know, the Nick of NSYNC. <laughs> and um, so, yeah. No, he's still alive. That still was, kicking. Still kicking. That was my bad. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I'm sure that there will be many corrections corners still to come. Oh, for sure. The fact that that was like our first one and we're on episode like 30, 20 something. It's unclear. De- I mean, depending on whether or not you count cults. Right. So, unclear this time. Unclear. Well, speaking of th- items, should we, talk about, <laughs> should we talk about psychology and history? I love our transition to psychology and history. Who knows? All right. So, yeah, let's jump in. Um, this week is the last of a three-part series about uh, flight, fight, and freeze, the trauma responses. Yeah. So... We're going to do a little quick refresh sesh. Hashtag. We're keeping it. (laughs) Um, Then we are going to pull in a piece of media. So for fight, just quick recap. For fight, we used the Hulk. Mm -hmm. For flight, we used Frozen, which is still ironic and fun. Um, And for freeze, I was trying to think of something that would be completely different than either of those two so that we can really capture our whole fan base. So I chose Grey's Anatomy. Oh, girl. I know. I know. It was tough. There were several Harry Potter scenes I thought about using. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to save Harry Potter for something else. Probably a hero's complex or something like that. Anyways. um, So we will talk more about that. So to get us started, um, we've got our hand brain model. For those of you who have been here with us for three weeks now. Um, you are very well aware of what this is. For those of you, if this is your first episode, welcome. And go listen to the last two episodes to learn more mm-hmm. about the handbrake model, because we're not going into all of it again. Um, as a basic reminder, basic brain structures, we have the prefrontal cortex. Um, in the handbrake model, this is your fingers. And it's responsible for logic, rational, thro- rational thought, 
decisions and planning. Um, we have your hippocampus, which if you'll remember, your memory jogger item here is you would remember a hippo on campus. Mm-hmm. Your hippocampus is responsible for memory and learning and is in kind of the palm of your hand. We have your amygdala, which is your thumb, and it's your fight, flight, freeze, or fawn fear threat detector. Your brainstem, which is responsible for breathing, swallowing, heart rate, blood circulation, basically keeping you alive. One we haven't talked about quite as much is the hypothalamus, which is responsible for emotional regulation, sleep, appetite, and sex drive. I have the cutest graphic to share with you all this week, so I will be sending that to Allie shortly. It's all these little brains, and they're all doing their things. It's very adorable. (laughs) But basically, when something triggers the amygdala, which is your um, threat detector, or your thumb in our Mm -hmm. handbrain model, um, your brain responds in a few ways and goes into survival mode. Fight is about aggression. Flight um, is fleeing the situation. Freeze is to become literally incapable of moving or making a choice. I don't think we've really gotten into the history of these terms. So before we go on, I want to give you some more of that background, mm. just to make sure we've covered all of our bases. I love a good history. You don't say. I am. I need a pen that says, my best friend loves history. That's right. Um, so fight or flight was coined by Walter Cannon in 1927. It was initially um, a reaction that he studied in animals. However, once it hit uh, like popular culture, everyone just kind of resonated with the idea and it oh, took yeah. off. Freeze was later added by David Barlow in 2002. Really? And that soon? Yeah, that recent. Oh, wow. Um, and fawn, which is one that we haven't mentioned yet, but we are really going to be covering in this episode, mm-hmm. um, came even later, I think in like the 2010s. Oh. I don't have the exact person for that one. I still need to do a little bit more digging. But Walter Cannon and David uh, Barlow were like the two big guys who figured all this out. Mm-hmm. Or at least gave it a name. Sure, Exactly. So these are adaptive behaviors that were designed to help us survive a threat. Our brains are literally always trying to figure out the best way to survive. Do we fight the threat, flee from the threat, or play dead? This can include physically freezing in place, spacing out and dissociating um, as the threat approaches and passes, and sometimes like physically collapsing into yourself. So thinking of like curling up into a ball, like protecting your... Mm -hmm organs protecting your heart like just getting as small as possible this reaction is also associated with tonic immobility which um is when you become physically and mentally unresponsive so like passing out or fainting if a threat becomes too much Mm. so as discussed before some warning signs that your amygdala has been called to action include rapid breathing and heart rate flushed or pale skin, tense muscles, dilated pupils, and dry mouth. All right. So that was, I think, our quickest recap of the three. Can I also say that I am loving doing a three-part series? Also, by the third one, I am feel completely recapped out. <laughs> like, <laughs> Right. So please go and listen to the first two. I do a much better job of oh, no, no, uh, no. giving the background for those, for those two. You're doing great. Thank you. All right, so we're going to dive into freeze. 
freezing feels a little bit more counterintuitive as a response to danger than flight and fight do. Mm-hmm. Um, and for multiple reasons, but freezing still serves a purpose. One article suggests that freezing may be the body giving the brain more time to decide how to react to the threat. Mm. So you experience a threat, your amygdala is triggered, and your brain just stops everything to take in as much information as possible to decide how to proceed next. It could be this way um, also to stay safe um, in hopes that the threat may lose interest if a response isn't an actual action. Yeah. So, like, if you're thinking about, um, uh, us <laughs> and how we would respond to danger. <laughs> yeah. I was actually thinking about animals. Like, animals will often not th- eat things that are already dead. Mm-hmm. So, I was thinking about possums and how opossums play dead. Oh, so cute. I know. <laughs> um, Growing up, we had a dog that really loved to chase our cats, and he would, like, antagonize the cat until the cat would run, and then he would get to chase them. However, one of our cats was not putting up with any of this foolishness and would, like, just sit there and kind of stare at the dog. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was a freeze response as much as the cat just was lazy and didn't want to run. But the dog eventually stopped antagonizing the cat because it wasn't getting the response it wanted. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of the same idea, is you freeze in hopes that whatever is threatening you will go away. Right. I do that every day. Yeah. Every day I freeze and just hope it. This is my go-to yeah. threat response. Oh, yeah. And, and on the Instagram poll, too, people were 50-50 between um, fight and freeze. Flight was not a popular. No. Too much energy. Decision. Yeah. Um, and I think... we. We'll talk a little bit more about why that might be at the end, but I'm also curious, once you hear more about Fawn, which I think you said you haven't heard of as much yeah. as the first three, um, we need to include that one in a poll next to find out between all four, which mm-hmm. which one people are more likely to do, because I was surprised when I learned more about fawning, mm-hmm. um, and I actually do a lot of fawning, too. Yeah. So... From what you've described in episode one of the three, it seems like what women do every day to, yeah. like, just get Survive. by. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And we'll talk about why that is, too. Perfect. So the freeze response is also potentially related to dissociation. Dissociation makes severely distressing events seem less real. Um, you literally feel like you're outside of your body or that your environment isn't real. Like you're kind of looking in on what's happening around you without actually feeling it or experiencing it. Um, It causes a person to feel just numb or detached. The freeze response has also been proven to be more common in people with previous experiences of trauma. Brains that have experienced trauma, such as those with PTSD or CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder or ongoing trauma, may be more likely to freeze because the brain simply has more trauma information to process before figuring out how to move forward. Also, with the trauma load that some people experience, additional trauma just feels like too much and your brain just shuts down. So there are a lot of reasons that people freeze. 
I personally have generalized anxiety disorder and have for many years. And when I'm living in my trauma brain, this is my trauma response. Mm -hmm. Like the other day, I was having a particularly difficult mental health day and was communicating with a friend. And her response was that I was having a survival day. And I'd never really thought about that before. But that's exactly what it felt like is I was hunkered down. I was sitting on my couch. um, I had water because I know that you know, I'm never going to feel better if I'm not drinking some water. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just as zoned out as I could possibly be because I could not handle anything else. Yeah. I was literally just surviving that day. Um, I've also heard it called wintering, like when you hunker mm-hmm. down for winter mm-hmm. to like protect your body. And, mm-hmm. um, so I also love the idea of wintering. Mm-hmm. But that's what freeze is when the threat is not immediately in front of you but your amygdala is still triggered Mm -hmm. you can like go into the survival day Um, other experiences associated with freeze include feeling stuck collapsing as we talked about like literally hunkering down into yourself Mm -hmm. um, immobilization depression and then experiencing tremendous shame because you're not able to interact or engage it's like being a roly-poly yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, little roly polies. Yeah. Next time we'll have to imagine. <laughs> I'll call it a roly poly day. Like an, or an armadillo. <gasps> I am obsessed with armadillos now. They're so cute. You called me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was out. And, and when you call me, I'm like, oh, no, something's wrong. Well, I've been driving since 5 o'clock that morning and was in Tennessee. Yeah, you were like, what is it? What are those things called? And I was like, an armadillo. And you're like, oh, I saw an armadillo. <laughs> I'd never seen it, and I was like, "Cool, what's wrong?" And you're like, "No, no, no, that's that's it. That's the whole thing." (laughs) I saw an armadillo. Okay, so armadillo slash roly poly. Got it. So now we can call it an armadillo day. Beautiful. Oh, I love that. I think we're gonna have to hash like trademark that. Oh yeah, armadillo days. Boom! You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So now we're gonna talk a little bit about fawning. And just tell me how many boxes this checks for you, because I see a lot of them with myself. Mm -hmm. And I think fawn and freeze really do go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So fawning involves immediately trying to please a person to avoid conflict. This trauma response is thought to be developed due to childhood trauma, where a child may have had to preemptively attempt to appease an abuser by being highly agreeable, answering with what they know the person wants to hear, ignoring their own feelings and desires, people-pleasing, avoiding conflicts, struggling to say no, mm-hmm. and difficulty setting boundaries. This is literally getting big old doe eyes and looking at somebody and saying, I'm just here, please don't, mm-hmm. you know, hurt me. Right, right. Um, whatever the trauma is, just looking at it, or whatever the trigger was, just looking at it and saying, oh, I'm okay, like, mm-hmm. Everything's fine. We don't actually need to freak out right now, but having right. the big doe eyes while you're doing it and mm-hmm. just trying to get through. The agreeability, I think, is yeah. like the main. Just using that as a mechanism to calm the situation down. Absolutely. Yeah. So for these two examples, um, as I said, we're going to be pulling from one of my favorite TV shows, mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy, Specifically, the episode about the shooter in the hospital, which is called Death and All His Friends, which is also Uh, the name of this episode. Oh. Death and All His Friends. Shit. Love that. So a quick recap for those of you who have not seen Grey's Anatomy. 
Um, Gary Clark is a man whose wife was a patient at the hospital and has died, and he is looking for Dr. Derek Shepard to seek revenge for her death. Lots of people in this episode are shot and or are dying. Um, And basically, Gary is walking around looking for doctors, Mm -hmm. specifically Derek Shepard, but he is not above killing every doctor that he sees. Because Derek Shepard, his wife died, I guess, at the, on the table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. While Derek was um, in charge of her care. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Miranda Bailey is um, one of the doctors on the show. She's kind of known for being... The best one. Phenomenal. Um, and you would kind of expect her trauma response to be fight. Mm-hmm. Like she yeah. has a big personality. Yeah. She is not afraid of conflict. Yeah. Um, however, in this episode... Dr. Bailey is in a patient's room and is wearing nurse's scrubs. I don't remember exactly what happened to hers, but she had to change into nurse's scrubs. Um, She learns that there's an active shooter in the hospital, and she has no option but to hide. Mm -hmm. So fight and flight are not options in this case. Right. Um, So she covers the patient, who is uh, Mandy Moore is the patient. (gasps) I'd forgotten that. Yep. Um, she covers Mandy Moore to make her appear dead mm-hmm. and then tells the other doctor who's in the room to hide in a closet mm-hmm. and she hides under the patient's bed. She hears the shooter come in and he's talking to the other doctor. He finds him in the closet and um, the shooter kills the doctor. Mm-hmm. He then like pulls back the sheet, realizes that the person on the bed looks dead mm-hmm. um, and ignores her and then he very slowly pulls Miranda out from under the bed, mm-hmm. which is terrifying. Yeah. So at this point, because she froze, because she was in this place of having no option other than to hide, mm-hmm. which is part of the freeze response is hiding. Yeah. Um, she is able to gather enough information to realize that he's killing doctors. Right, right. So... Oh, girl! Yeah, so this is where... I'm trying to validate the freeze response because it's literally what saves her life in this. Oh, is that for sure. She is frozen. She is taking in information. She is processing information. And when he asks her if she is a doctor, she says no. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's wearing nurse scrubs, mm-hmm. not doctor scrubs, I think. So she lies. And the additional information that she received while she was frozen is what saves her life. Yeah. And that's why the uh, the freeze response works. Mm-hmm is because um, you're able to take in a little bit more information or process more information before you figure out what your next step is going to be. Yep. Again, this is a very extreme example, but everything in Grey's Anatomy is extreme. That's true. Also in this episode, we're going to pivot to Fawn and April Kepner. So April is another doctor at the hospital, and she comes face-to-face with the gunman on... In the, chil- in the child's unit? Which one's April? No, April is the redhead who was the first person to find someone dead and alert Dr. Shepard that there was a shooter in the hospital. Gotcha, okay. Um, so her friend, her best friend, has just been killed by the shooter. But um, is, that, is that Meredith's younger sister? No, that's Lexi. Okay, I'm lost. I mean, I'm not lost, but I don't know who anybody is. That's fine. Continue. <laughs> I mean, I think you'll still kind yeah, of oh, get yeah. the gist of this oh, without, sure. you know, really knowing who they are. But April... Um, she is kind of known for being sweet and innocent, pretty naive. She um, 
kind of has the doe eyes to begin with. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me at all that her character is written to fawn. So she comes face to face with the gunman. Initially, I think she's trying to alert him to the fact that there's a shooter in the hospital. And then she realizes that he is the shooter. Oh, God. And she looks at him and she immediately begins to tell him about herself. Mm -hmm. She appeals to his humanity. Right. She tells him about her sisters and where she is in the birth order and where she grew up and that she's a good person and that she goes to church. She's trying to connect with him and make her human to him so that he won't hurt her. Mm -hmm. Because she's such a people pleaser, this suits her so well. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know a whole lot about her trauma history from the show, but we do know that this is undoubtedly what saved her life. Mm-hmm. So again, this is a less common trauma response, um, but it definitely has a purpose. Mm-hmm. And in many instances, it, it does actually save people's lives. Oh yeah. The problem is that freeze and fawn and, fight and flight are all controlled by our brain's autonomic nervous system, which is part of the limbic system. And most people have a dominant response that they rely on, but usually it's too heavy. You rely on it too much. Trauma isn't just about the past, but rather how it's replaying in the present moment in our bodies, Mm -hmm. whether or not the trauma or the trigger is real and in front of you and valid. Right. So, At first, you may have developed this fear response for very valid reasons. Like, being in a hospital with a shooter, those are valid trauma responses. Um, But having anxiety in your day-to-day life and still having the same trauma response is when we uh, realize that we need to get out of survival brain Mm -hmm. and back into learning brain. Yeah, Like, living in that survival brain as we've talked about for three weeks now, um, it's just really hard on your body. You have high levels of cortisol and adrenaline, and that can really have long-term negative uh, outcomes. So I'm gonna like pull all of these things together. Um, to recap, we're gonna set up a scenario. You're out jogging. Oh, a jog? I mean, I'm not, but you might be. (laughs) And a large, visibly aggressive, like, snarling dog crosses your path. Mm -hmm. Your trauma response, if your go-to is fight, is to become aggressive and throw an object at the dog Mm -hmm. in hopes that the dog will get scared and run away. Right. If your trauma response is flight, you might turn around and run the other way. You might run faster to see if you can, you know, get around the dog, Mm -hmm. but you're going to avoid it by fleeing from it. Right. If your trauma response is freeze, you might stop moving to see if the dog will also stop um, because they may perceive you as a threat. And if you show them that you're not coming towards them, they might move on. Or fawn, you might start, hey, pup, it's okay. You know, like just trying to calm it down. So putting all four of these together, you can really see how trauma responses are developed and how they function. Mm-hmm. But that's with a trauma- traumatic experience. That's not with big T trauma. Big T trauma is like growing up in a neighborhood where there's frequent gunfire and then hearing a car backfire as an adult. And how do your trauma responses play out? Mm-hmm. For fight, you may, might become agitated flight you might start searching for a place to escape to freeze you might become still or hide or drop to the floor even faint Mm -hmm. 
And for Fawn, you might already be thinking of, okay, who is it? How do I mm-hmm. talk them down? Like, how do I stay safe? These are often ongoing and not one-time events. Think of the Hulk and Elsa. Their trauma caused them to repeatedly use the same fear response, even when the threat was different. Um, when you're living in trauma brain, when you've experienced trauma, it's harder to differentiate between the threats and the non-threats. So you live in this place of anger or running or dissociation or people-pleasing for extended periods of time, which limits your social functioning and ability to learn and think in complex ways. Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing these things are helpful, but what's even more helpful is knowing how to cope. So my number one, and we've talked about this all three weeks now, is connection. Come up with a code word um, or a way to signal that you need help from your friends and family. Like, I'm having an armadillo day is now going to be code for I am in complete freeze and shutdown mode. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm struggling, I might call a friend and say, I don't want to talk about this, but can we talk about something else? Yeah. Um, can I tell you, you know about my day connection andrea gibson who's just one of my very favorite poets has a quote that says um sometimes the most healing thing we can do is remind ourselves over and over that other people feel this too Mm -hmm. and that's really how you start to get out of trauma brain is remembering that you're not alone you have connections and you have support number two breathing is essential to life It also helps you get out of trauma brain. (laughs) Uh, Stress responses cause shallow and fast breathing because your body is physically getting ready for something. Mm -hmm. Um, So slowing down your breathing and focusing on your breath can lead to a quieting and even reversal of the stress response. That's like the quintessential calm down. Just breathe. Yeah. Which nobody wants to be told to do it, but it's good for you to remind yourself to do it. Well, and even if you're talking to someone who's in a trauma space or in trauma brain and you're recognizing it, um, sometimes just calling attention to it and saying, hey, you sound like you're breathing really fast Mm -hmm. um, helps them like clue into, oh, my body is doing this thing. Right. Um, You might, you know, encourage someone to just put their hand on their chest or if you're looking at somebody and you do it, they might mirror you to really realize that they're not breathing as deeply as they could. But you're right. Like that's step one is to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, but no one ever wants to hear take a deep breath. Right. Relax. Especially when it's like condescending. Like the now take a deep breath. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not that bad. Right. Ugh. Never say take a deep breath. It's not that bad. Back to back. Mm-mm. Maybe say can we take a deep breath. Or, like, use it as a way to connect with a person, not to continue to push them further away. Yeah, don't be dismissive. Exactly. Jeez, D-bad. D-bad. Third, move around. This one is difficult for me because, as we said, in freeze response, you don't really feel like moving. So this feels really impossible um, when I'm in a trauma place. But if you can recognize the trauma response early enough and try to move, walk or run, do yoga, dance... Um, anything to kind of get your brain out of survival mode and into your body and like back into something. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I used to schedule my therapy appointments just before my dance classes because I thought it would help regulate my emotions more afterwards. Mm. Um, And it only backfired like once, (laughs) maybe twice. (laughs) Right. That's a really Uh, good thinking, though. Thank you. Because you have an outlet afterwards to... To really process or to avoid it if I need to think about something else. Yeah. But... Just moving your body um, is a good way to reconnect with yourself. And then self-care. Oh. I know. Face masks. I love and hate the word self-care. Like, we scream self-care over and over and over in my field, and it feels like just a thing that people say now, but it really is so important. Um, You're usually in a heightened state with your fear response for at least 20 minutes to an hour it takes that long for your body to begin to unwind and start to process adrenaline and cortisol with self-care you can help this process especially if you've been engaged in self-care over an extended period of time that can mean eating regular balanced meals drinking water taking breaks from working or watching the news exercise regularly get enough sleep and prioritize relaxation and enjoyable activities mm-hmm Most importantly, we need to know when to seek help Hmm. Um, because living in trauma brain can be really isolating. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's hard when you're in that place to know where to go for help or to even know who to turn to. And there's so much trauma in the world. There's currently a hurricane in New Orleans that hit on the anniversary of Katrina. The Taliban is back in charge of Afghanistan. The news is dismal. Outside of our doors, we see people in need. Inside, we see that we are hurting too, and we just really don't know what to do with all of this. We've also been experiencing a chronic trauma response over the past year and a half, and that has negative long-term effects on the body. You might have more chronic pain, digestive issues, hormone imbalances, mental health problems that are developing or worsening, and ongoing brain fog. It literally impacts every area of your life. So know when to seek help. If you don't have a therapist, highly recommend. Big, big fan of therapists. Um, If you're at risk for self-harm, suicide, or hurting someone else, you can call 911. Or you can text TALK to 741-741. There's also the National Suicide Prevention Hotline that's open 24 hours a day. And that number is 800 273-8255. I want to leave you with one last line of poetry um, Mm. because I love poetry and that's one of my go-to regulation Mm -hmm. uh, skills is to read poetry. I like the the cadence of it. Um, But Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, let everything happen to you. Beauty and terror. Just keep going. No feeling is final. Mm. And that's how survival brain feels a lot of the time is that you're just in this place where it's never going to end. You're mm-hmm. just going to feel this way forever. Um, so I love this. You just got to experience it. You just got to keep going and just know that it's not final. Mm-hmm. It does get better. Oh, God. Feelings, man. Yeah. So All the feelings. Stay tuned next week for a non-trauma response. Too bad we did happy chemicals already because, man, we could use it after this one. <laughs> Uh, go back and listen to Happy Chemicals That's if you right. need it. Little serotonin, little serotonin, little dopamine, little dope dope. <laughs> um, 
what I think I keep coming back to with this whole series is the difference between physical um, dangers and mental and emotional dangers. Oh, absolutely. Like we, and we feel triggered and they can also feel just as real and... Yeah. And, um, and it's interesting because with the dog situation, all of the examples you gave, I could relate to in some situation. Uh-huh. Um, so I just, I think it's just situational sometimes too. And I think everybody likes to think that they would know how they would react to certain scenarios. Yeah. We have no idea. We don't, but we know what, or most people I think know what their dominant trauma responses, which one is most likely to override the others. Like you and I have talked about freeze being kind of our dominant responses. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah, you can tell which ones feel safest to yeah. you, you know. But I don't know that we can, because because the the Grey's Anatomy example where certain options aren't available. Yeah, you've got to do what you've got to so do. There's so many variables, right? Well, and that's I think when we look back at the evolution of the brain, it's all about survival, mm-hmm. and your brain processes so much information so quickly that you really can use any of the four to respond to trauma, especially an immediate threat. What I find to be especially interesting is when the threat is not physically in front of you, but mm-hmm. the threat is in your brain. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and I think people who have experienced the physical threat being in front of you are more likely to respond to the threat in their brain in specific ways. Mm-hmm. And then live in that space for extended periods of time. Yeah. And it's hard to come out of it. Yeah. Oh, so. yeah. 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 There's just so... The brain is such an interesting place. And to know that everything your brain does, or at least most everything your brain does, is to try and protect you. Mm-hmm. Now, occasionally you'll have some intrusive thoughts, which are doing the opposite um, and might be, you know, telling you things that don't feel safe or like survival but um most of the time your brain is doing whatever it can to to protect you Mm -hmm. thanks brain bodies are bodies are just the best (laughs) we should love our bodies yeah that is that is self-care yeah just Just, they do so much for us yeah just take care of your meat suit uh yikes (laughs) do one good thing for the day like if you just have i mean if you're having a survival day an armadillo day just do one thing that's good for it yeah um good for your brain good for your soul good for your body absolutely all right well, let's take a break for a second, and then we will come back and hear your topic for the week. Yay! And we're back. And we're back. And we're ready for some history. All right. Please tell me you've got something to cheer us up after fawn and freeze. Not a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Not a thing. History so, is dark. 
the name of our title or the name of our episode this week is death and all his friends and and the challenger shuttle explosion (laughs) (laughs) fuck i know i know here we go oh shit prepare your body on january 28th let's just take a deep breath okay let's do that together (sighs) a little asmr all right Mm. now my body is ready you may continue on January 28th, 1986, at Kennedy Space Center in Florida, the Challenger shuttle exploded 73 seconds after takeoff. The Challenger space shuttle had flown nine times successfully prior to January 28th. Really? Yes. In fact, the shuttle had made history by bringing the first woman and first black American into space. <gasps> Successfully. Successfully. Okay. It had also hosted the very first space lab, as well as making the first astronaut-run satellite repair possible. Wow. She's making history. Yeah. Yes. So what the fuck happened? Well, I'm going to tell you, it, it's fascinating. It really, really is fascinating. Science! Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> so it was the 10th and final mission and find a launch that would change the history and policy of NASA forever. The 10th launch was highly anticipated, and many credit the diversity and relatability of the shuttle members to the peaked interest. Krista, Macaulay, McAuliffe? McAuliffe? We're going to go with it. She was a teacher from New Hampshire who was expected to be the first civilian to fly in space. I've heard about her either on another podcast or documentary. She's the most famous. They really, really made this shuttle launch about her. Right. Um, Because she was going to teach from space. She was going to teach from space. Um, So she applied to and won her spot through Teachers in Space Project. And this was sponsored by then President um, Reagan and NASA, mm-hmm. and out of 11,000 applicants, Krista was chosen. Wow. She was a 37-year-old mother of two, and she taught high school social studies in English. Um, she trained for six months before joining the crew, and the media, like I said, really focused on her um, because she had the girl-next-door vibes. She was also an educator, um, and she was getting ready to go on this journey that no one else in her position, just a normal person um, had ever been. So the ultimate goal for Krista was to teach two lessons from space on the fourth day of the mission. Um, And that would be broadcasted to schools across the country. Ellison Onizuko was also on the um, mission that day, and he was the first Asian American and person of Japanese descent to travel to space. He grew up in Hawaii. He joined the military and ultimately ended up at NASA as an engineer. Wow. He had flown in a space shuttle mission the year before in 1985 on the same Challenger uh, ship. Ship. <laughs> item um (laughs) and was a national hero um because of his accomplishments ronald mcnair was the second black american to reach space he quote earned his phd in physics from mit just a few years later he was invited to join the class of 78 at nasa 
No black person had ever flown into space at that point. Two had been chosen for the astronaut training program in the 1960s, but one was not selected to join NASA, and the other who was invited to become an astronaut died during a test uh, flight. Oh, shit. Which I didn't read, like, the, obviously going to space is, like, a very dangerous job. Yeah. There's a lot. Just ask Bezos. Obviously, (laughs) these people are super qualified, Mm -hmm. and we'll see a lot more of that, Um, but it's very complicated, so the fact that this, you know, other guy died in a test flight is just really tragic yeah the agency worked to recruit potential black astronauts when it resumed its program in part by using nichelle nichols from star trek oh um as a member um you know she did all these these basically like a marketing program to um to speak to people and be like hey come join nasa and be an astronaut so Ronald uh, McNair was a six-degree black belt in karate, and he also loved to play the saxophone. Oh, I know. I love that for Just, him. I know. In his previous flight on the Challenger in 1984, he became the first person to play music in space. And his plan for 86 was to play the first concert, which was going to be shown through satellite oh i love that i know oh Mm. so much potential for this like they'd really hype this up oh oh absolutely um judith also it has very strong xena and girl the 21st century vibes does it zeta sapletus zeta sapletus (laughs) (laughs) um judith uh resnick was 28 when she was called to join nasa in 1978 she scored a perfect 1600 on the sat get it get it and uh, attended carnegie mellon for her undergraduate and then went on to earn her phd in electrical engineering from the university of maryland she joined nasa one year after receiving her phd which is like totes unheard of (laughs) (laughs) she spent the next five years training and she made her first flight into space in 1984 she was the second woman and first jewish woman in space wow Dick Scobie was the commander of the Challenger for this mission. He became, um, oh, he comes from a background in Air, in the Air Force as well as NASA. He was a Vietnam veteran, um, and he took his first flight into space in 1984. Gregory Jarvis does not have a background in NASA for engineering. Instead, he worked his way up within the system. He was in the Air Force during Vietnam as well, and he worked in the space division, focusing on satellites. After his military service, he worked for Hughes Aircraft, which was a contractor for the military and for NASA. He eventually was able to work his way to working on space-related crafts. I want to say aircrafts. I don't, I don't, yeah, yeah, crafts. Um, And after almost 10 years, he applied to work for NASA with the space shuttles. He, like Krista, was a non-astronaut passenger. In fact, he was bumped twice before for politicians to be on those missions. He never, ever got to be on one until the Challenger mission of January 86. 
He was supposed what shitty luck. To, I know. He was the he was supposed to take the trip in April of eighty five and um he was replaced uh and by politicians. Um and instead he was scheduled for the Challenger's final mission, unfortunately. Yikes. Michael J. Smith was a father of three and had experience piloting the Challenger. He piloted the fifth Challenger mission. He spent the majority of the 1980s assisting NASA in developing new parts and procedures for the space shuttle program. Michael spoke the last words of anyone on the Challenger. That was recorded Um, closely after takeoff. Michael can be heard saying, "Uh uh-oh, indicating that there was a concern uh, within the group fairly quickly. Um, He had never been to space. Oh, Yes. So, Natal, Natal, Jesus. Amen. NASA's space shuttle program anticipated flying 60 flights every year when it was first conceived, which means sometimes flying multiple times a week. Yeah. Like they plan to go to space a lot. Um, they were ambitious. Super ambitious. Soup stoops. This was supposed to be possible because the spacecraft and other items were supposed to be reusable, which sounds good in theory. Improbable in reality. Well, if you're building a shuttle only to never be reused again, super expensive. And so wasteful. So wasteful. Think of the environment. So there is the orbiter of the craft so this is the actual aircraft like what you would envision a spaceship to be Uh this is where the people are the passengers are um those were obviously going to be reused right the two solid rocket boosters helped to launch the aircraft into space those would fall off into the water they would be fished out and refurbished the large tank that supported the energy to get the rocket into space also, that part was not reused. Right. Okay. So the problem they ran into was that was it was much harder to refurbish these items than originally intended. And it became clear that 60 flights per year was not realistic. One issue that was seen with reusing the solid rocket boosters was the erosion of something called the O-ring. So think of like a washer, Mm -hmm. the flat piece of metal, it has a hole in it, it goes around a screw, and it acts essentially as a buffer, and it helps everything stay in place. And that's what the O-ring essentially did. There were two O-rings at every joint, right? This helped to create a backup in the event that an original O-ring would fail. So one of the one of the um, interviews I heard was that they were like, you know, you want to create a plan B everywhere possible. Redundant systems. Absolutely. Just in case. The year prior to the Challenger explosion on the flight that Ellison Onizuku was on, they pulled back the joints from the solid rocket booster and they saw that there was soot in the O-ring. Soot in the O-ring would indicate that the primary O-ring had eroded at certain parts and essentially failed. Right. So they determined that this was because of the temperature that day that they launched. 
um, which at the time was 53 degrees Fahrenheit, which was at the time the coldest date in history to launch. But it's not that cold. No. I mean, in the scheme of, of what is cold, no, no, it is not. It is not very cold. But it did give them an idea that, you know, everything, process of elimination, what was different about this flight? Yeah. It, it was a little chilly. So the original, so the, the, the flight, the mission that we are talking about, uh, and the launch of that mission was postponed three separate times. And it was scrubbed once about a month before the launch due to another mission that had scheduling conflicts. So I don't know if they didn't have the, the manpower to support tracking to two or one got back late. And so they had to postpone the other. Um, the first postponement came on the eve of January 25th. This was due to inclement weather. Mm-hmm. It was just not a good day to yep. fly. Quote, the launch attempt for January 27th began the day before as the complex sequence of events leading to liftoff commenced. Fueling of the external tank began at 12.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The crew was awakened at 5.07 a.m. And events proceeded normally with the crew strapped into the shuttle at 7.56 a.m. At 9.10, however, the countdown was halted when the uh, when the ground crew reported a problem with an external hatch handle. By the time the hatch handle problem was solved at 10.30 a.m., winds at Kennedy Runway designated for a return to launch site abort and increased and exceeded the allowed velocity for crosswinds. Yep. The launch attempt for January 27th was canceled at 12.35 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The Challenger countdown was rescheduled for January 28th. End quote. So they were not having the best luck as far as weather and rescheduling. uh, And it was like a a pretty anticipated launch. Mm -hmm. On the eve of the 28th, the ground winds that had halted the launch for that morning had a cold front coming from behind it. Mm -hmm. This created essentially chaos for NASA, who feared um, that they were going to have to postpone the launch for the fourth time. You didn't by chance find out how strong any of these winds were, did you? Uh, No, not numbers. Alan McDonald, the director of the Space Shuttle Rocket Booster Project at Morton Theoko, girl, I don't know, I don't ever know how to pronounce anything. So they were an engineering contractor of NASA. Uh Uh-huh. And they took the lead um, on researching the the temperature issue because there was there was concerned concern (laughs) um and they got together all of the engineers to meet with the management Mm -hmm. regarding what they knew and didn't know about the um temperature issue so they were able to provide an hour by hour analysis of the temperatures um for takeoff and what they were projecting basically the next 12 hours to look like yep and ultimately, they stated that they did not recommend launching at temperatures under 53 degrees Fahrenheit. So NASA management and the engineers at the Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama, 
as well as the engineers in Utah from Morton Theocal. Um, we're all on a conference call by 8 p.m. on the 27th to discuss whether it was safe to launch for the next day. Alan McDonald was present during this meeting, um, and the engineers recommended altogether collectively, they said, we do not recommend to launch tomorrow. And NASA ultimately decided that they did not have substantial evidence. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the substantial evidence of having multiple people say, Correct. Do not do this. That is correct. Tell Um, me it was a white man without telling me it was a white man. Right. So somebody said, uh, so Alan said in an interview that the tables were kind of turned on the engineers during this this conference call, and they were asked to prove um, that the errors they predicted would occur based on the projected temperature for tomorrow. So instead of what they did know, which was a small percentage, hey, under 53 degrees, I think he said something like, we know there's a ledge out there, we just don't know where. Yeah. So errors could occur. So they were asking them basically to prove that tomorrow would fail, which is um, very gaslighty and very yeah. icky. Yep. Don't love that. So after they received all of the information, like I said, they did uh, decide to proceed. There was a signed document um, that was signed by these members that authorized the launch for the next day, which really ended up sealing their fate later. The morning of January 28th, uh, the family members of the crew gathered on top of a building across from launch site to support their loved ones. Likewise, children across the globe were tuned in at school to watch the first teacher in space. There were so many people watching this. Yeah, I think in the documentary I saw, I'm pretty sure it was a documentary now, um, they were interviewing some people who had been in that teacher's classroom the year before or like during that year um, and like what it was like for them seeing their teacher, how excited they were, and then basically watching it explode and knowing what was happening. Like how traumatic. So, So tragic. So tragic. Um, that morning, the green light was given, um, and the craft was launched. The fight, the flight was instructed to go with throttle up, um, which is the second step of takeoff. <laughs> 73 seconds um, after launching, there was an explosion. You can see the solid rocket boosters veering off away from the main explosion going in two different directions the orbiter um can be seen falling the three miles from the sky into the ocean yeah it was presumed at the time that the astronauts on board died immediately in the explosion when you say it was presumed at the time i know what do you mean (laughs) because i always heard they died in the explosion in the explosion yes i did not know that until i was researching i don't like this so 50 percent of the debris from the aircraft was recovered over the following days weeks and months days after the explosion basically we're going to come back to that question 
Okay. I figured you would. Yes. I wasn't assuming you were ignoring me. I'm not ignoring you. So days after the explosion, film was being reviewed of the launch, and it's noticed that there is a small puff of smoke and a small flame that can be seen that appears to be coming from the solid rocket booster. It was then determined that it was coming from the joint that attached the solid rocket booster to the tank. That they had already flagged as being a potential issue because of the O-rings. That's right. Hashtag O-rings. The initial failure was exactly the fear that the engineers had had the night before. However, it manifested itself in a final and much bigger failure than anticipated. What really happened was that the O-ring failed, both of them, releasing a flame or puff of smoke at about three-tenths of a second after launch. Wow. As it burned through the O-ring, it hit the cold January air and solidified. So it basically formed a seal, and it just sealed itself right back up. However, at 59 seconds, the vehicle, at this point, pressures are changing, and the aircraft is attempting to stay on track. So there's wind coming in, Uh the cold air wind, which is causing the vehicle to shift, and it's basically trying to auto-correct its path based on the the weather, which causes more turbulence and more, more movement than normal. So this movement broke loose the seal Mm -hmm. at the joint and basically tore open where um, the, where it had sealed itself up. Yeah. So after 13 more seconds, it had burned portions of the tank so bad that the tank collapsed, causing the explosion. Um, And it also caused the tanks to eject, um, and the orbiter was still projected upward. So the crew cabin in the orbiter, where all the crew was, as I mentioned earlier, it was thought that the crew had died during the explosion. However, weeks later, they found the crew cabin intact at the bottom of the ocean. (gasps) No. Now the cabin is pressurized, where the astronauts... You know, they had been training for emergencies. They knew exactly what to do in this particular event. And it was said that those who could be recognized were in their emergency air packs, which means that while they were falling the three miles to the ocean, they were alive. Now it is thought that they died on impact into the ocean or two to three minutes after when their oxygen supply ran out. This all is a super tragic event, and all of it was absolutely avoidable. It happened because of ego and reputation, um, and they put that basically in front of safety. Yeah. Um, And the only silver lining at all is that NASA had to take a hard, long look at themselves in the mirror, and they implemented... um, very strict policies and procedures to make sure that something like this would never happen again. Yeah. Um, Part of the reason they think uh, that they rushed it was because there was so much media coverage of this particular launch and they felt embarrassed that they had had to reschedule so many times. Yeah. Um, And this was a Tuesday. 
So they were originally, they were scheduled for Monday and then had to push it to Tuesday. Um, Just Christ- wait a week. Krista was supposed to teach on the fourth day of the mission. So if they didn't go on Tuesday, it would have put her lesson on Saturday if they had to to go the next day, which kids weren't in school. So there was a huge push because they had marketed this, essentially. Um, And again, they they put um, their own shit in front of safety um unfortunately but that is the history of the challenger shuttle in january of 1986 that is so much more tragic than i realized yeah um and even in the documentary that i remember watching i don't remember that last piece of it Mm um wow yeah wow yeah, I was able to watch a lot of footage of um, Alan McDonald, who actually was asked to sign the document stating that it was good to launch for that next day, and he refused to sign it. And his boss had to sign it and was ultimately liable for that. Can you imagine the experience of being responsible for that? He said it was the best thing he ever did was not signing that document. Oh, I, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good decisions are. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I remember I studied this in one of my communications classes, just about the lack of policy and procedure Mm -hmm. and the importance of proper communication and um, believing people. And and it was tough in that big meeting. You know, they were basically looking for a reason not to launch. Um, the, The, you know, management felt that way. Yeah. Um, and they didn't feel like they had enough um, evidence. And I just, I feel like if, um, you know, what's one more day? What's one more day? Or one more week. I mean, for people's lives, like. Absolutely. If you're so pressed to have her teach four days after you launch, mm-hmm. push it a week. Yeah. Like, people are adaptable. Yes. Wow. Excellent job. I'm just like processing all of that. Um, this is a full episode. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of fun things to talk yeah. about here. Lots to unpack. History. And psychology. Why, why did we pick these two? Who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why don't we take a quick break and then we'll do intersection. Sounds great. Cool. All right. So let's talk drama. Oh, let's talk trauma. Okay, so the we know that in my history portion, we had viewers who literally witnessed oh, a tragedy. Yeah. That's and a good point. Suffered uh, emotional. What we can expect would be trauma moving forward. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of us watching nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it probably had a similar impact on Gen X, who would have been in school at that time, as millennials watching the yeah. towers fall. Yeah. Um, well, and having, you know, the same uh, group of people had watched, um, well. This was 86? Yeah. Uh, so they would have had, like, the teachers who would have been teaching would have presumably all like, watched the moon landing in their classrooms and possibly oh, wow. wanted to bring 
that yeah. kind of history into their own spaces, right? And then yeah. this fucking thing happens. Wow, that's a really great point. I think that, um, I mean, we were in what, 2001, like fourth or fifth, fifth grade? grade? Fifth yeah. grade. I, I remember it very clearly. I had the same teacher for fourth and fifth grade in the same classroom. Oh, that's um, so I can never remember yeah. <laughs> which year it was, but I know it was that teacher in that classroom. Yeah. Um, but the trauma I have associated with that is, I mean, it's devastating. Like, even if you don't fully understand mm-hmm. what's going on, like assuming that every kid who was watching the explosion didn't necessarily understand what was going on, there's a moment of significance. Mm-hmm. And um, what we saw after 9-11, I think, was a coming together and a connection of so many people who were um, traumatized and sad and, like, processing all of this stuff. And the world was grieving. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it was kind of the same, not the same, but a similar experience with the challenger because so many people were so emotionally invested in this there was definitely trauma and seeing any tragedy unfold in front of your you know still maturing brain yeah uh, is is gonna mold you for the rest of your life yeah and i was not there but i am certain that there were multiple fear responses associated to witnessing that yeah and i think that ultimately Like, even if people weren't perceiving it as a threat to their own safety, um, the way that we recover from trauma is still the same, whether our amygdala is currently, you know, signaling a fight, flight, or freeze response, or if we're just processing trauma, like, we still need the same things. Mm -hmm. We still need connection, and we still need to breathe, and we still need to be able to move to, like, express some of that, or to rid our bodies of some of that cortisol and adrenaline. Yeah. Um, like trauma responds, trauma in your body is the same regardless. Right. Whether there's a physical, uh, physical threat or, or threat. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So I think you're exactly right. And I mean, I just keep coming back to the misinformation that I think we were all told about them dying when the explosion happened versus the trauma of knowing that they survived the initial explosion. Mm-hmm. That's just a lot to process. Oh, for sure. And I think we'll come, we'll constantly come back to that in the history portion about things we thought, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz was not the first <laughs> movie in color. Turns yeah. out, just you know, we'll 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 discuss that a, a thousand more times. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, and we'll. I think that what this podcast is continuing to teach me is that everything builds on each other. Mm -hmm. Like we talk about not only the same people over and over again, like Hippocrates, um, but we talk about a lot of the same themes over and over again. We talk about trauma over and over again. And it's because these experiences are so universal. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, hopefully we don't have any more explosions like the challenger yeah but we do still have people going into space for what amounts to fun like right oh god it's insulting yeah but i mean the teacher and the musician were going into space to educate people Mm -hmm. and now we have billionaires who are going into space 
on their own dime for the hell of going into space. Like, right. yep. the world is growing and progressing. And I know that for me personally, when Bezos went into space, I was like, oh my gosh, what if his thing explodes? Like, what impact would that have? Mm-hmm. Um, well, if you can't operate a business that runs without you, then you're terrible at your job. <laughs> But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) that's another conversation for another day, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But very heavy. This was a heavy episode. That's okay. Why don't we remind everyone to go drink some water? Oh, girl, have a glass of water. Please do. It makes your skin very happy. Yep. Eat some good food. Like, good for you food. Good for you. Good for you. Good for you. Uh, get away the blanket if you don't have one or find a cat who will lay on your face. <laughs> that sounded... <laughs> Either one we'll is good. Happy chemicals. <laughs> so if you would like to choose a topic for us, head over to patreon.com. Search for us. We are under podcast without an audience. You are getting access to our pasta recipe. If you have not seen the reviews we've gotten on instagram for our pasta recipe they are rolling in people are loving it you can have it too head over to patreon.com go check it out it's delicious i had it for at least three meals in the past two weeks breakfast lunch and dinner put it on a biscuit i don't know (laughs) um but thank you guys as always for listening if you support us blink twice and if you're out there keep listening Thank you for listening to Podcast Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanaudd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.